The U.S. defense industry is large, complex, and competitive. It is also lucrative for those companies able to navigate it successfully. The American Society of Military Comptrollers helps bridge the gap between the boardroom and the battlefield while supporting transformation in the defense sector. The Business of Defense podcast brings you inside the companies working to achieve this directly from the business leaders and to understand how they create value for their companies and their customers. For more information on ASMC, visit asmconline.org. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I'm speaking today with the incredible poet Maggie Smith. Maggie Smith is the author of national bestsellers, Goldenrod and Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity and Change, as well as Good Bones, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison and Lamp of the Body. Her poems and essays have also been widely published and anthologized in such places as Best American Poetry, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and elsewhere. Honestly, we could be here all day reciting well-deserved accolades, but Folks, if you have not yet had the chance to find Maggie Smith's poetry or essays, you should take the time to do so. Her work is fantastic, and it is a dream to speak with you today, Maggie. Oh, thanks for having me. That's so nice. Yeah, and I am just giddy. We're here to talk about your new book, a memoir. You could make this place beautiful. This book is an exquisite look at grief, loss, and renewal. The chapters are like little gems, each capturing a moment or emotion. I thought I was going to charge right through it because the individual chapters themselves are fairly short, but I found myself really taking time with it, sort of reading a chapter or a passage and then really lying back and like breathing deeply and listening to all the things that came up for me. What was it like to write such an intensely personal book? Well, I have to say, I'm glad. It sounds like you kind of read it like poetry, which is like poetry is short, right? And Technically, you could just barrel through a poem, but really it's meant to be kind of savored at the line level and the sentence level. So I love that you read the memoir like someone approaching a poem. Yeah, it was a big shift for me to write memoir after writing primarily poetry and an essay, if only for the length. (laughs) Like, oh, I have a lot more real estate that I get to use here. But I think even more than that, you know, writing poems, we have at least some flimsy cover of what we call the speaker of the poem. So even in a poem like Good Bones, where I say, you know, life is short, though I keep this from my children, the I is not technically me, Maggie Smith, the poet. It's like the speaker of the poem, the narrator. There's like a little bit of distance. And yet when you're writing memoir, that kind of collapses. And so the I in this book, is me, Maggie Smith, the writer of the book. And the things that happened really happened. And even though there's a lot of metaphor and other sort of, you know, literary devices I use in the book, it's still real in my life. And so just kind of squaring up with that writing experience was was probably the biggest shift. Like, oh, I really miss the speaker right now because I'm just in here by myself. (laughs) You did like give a little bit of space some of the time, you know, when you like did a little bit of an overview and you 
discuss the, the finder, the giving just that little bit of emotional distance with these really heavy, personal, deeply emotional pieces. Yeah. You know, you're right. Like I found ways, sort of craft ways for myself within the book to give myself some distance where I needed it. You know, at one point I was like, why didn't I just write this as a novel? Like that would have probably felt better to have all these things happen to a she who maybe has different hair than I do and lives someplace else and has a different job. Wouldn't that have been a a sort of easier, less vulnerable way to approach this project? And so I do kind of dip in and out of of sort of play with with sort of character and plot and, and other aspects in the book. And that was me trying to give myself a little bit of a breather at times and have some fun with it. Yeah, it was really well done. And I feel like for even for the reader, it was really necessary because just spending so much time in heartbreak and processing heartbreak without being able to surface a little bit and see the landscape a little bit, it would be an untenable position really for anybody. I mean, even when we ourselves are going through grief, we don't, you know, we find ways to like take a step away from it in order to be able to really process all the pieces of it. Absolutely. I mean, you just used a metaphor then when talking about it, right? Like the idea of surfacing and landscape. And I mean, we use metaphor so often as a way to help us frame or reframe situations or make sense of them or just metabolize them a little bit easier, you know, like Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, as a poet, I mean, I think we all do it, but that's something that I was really aware of when working on this book is like, how can I use metaphor, not just for myself, to help myself process, but to help put the reader in a place where they can understand what I'm saying, A, but also in times to kind of provide some relief from the starkness of the actual, the actual happenings of the book. Yeah. The title of your book, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, is from a line from your poem, Good Bones, Good Bones, which went viral in 2016. And you mentioned that the popularity of that poem detrimentally affected your marriage. What's your relationship like to that absolute earthquake of a poem now? I don't regret writing it or publishing it. I wouldn't unring that bell at all. I, I have a a sort of complicated relationship with that poem for lots of reasons. I mean, it's sort of a disaster barometer. So whenever it's shared widely, I know something bad has happened in the world. And that's, you know, to have a kind of bat signal uh, in poem form as a writer, is a weird thing. And then, yes, there's this added layer where I realized that not the poem itself, but the demands on my time and the sort of, I would say, greater greater commitment to my creative life that was made possible and necessary by that poem becoming so popular did put a strain on my marriage. And so I have have lots of feelings about it, but I I wouldn't do it differently. Yeah, yeah. The the way that you were called to be more of a public figure after that poem seems like it set up a dynamic that may have already existed that you speak to in your book about the devaluing of your work as mm. work specifically and how work that's done oftentimes by women is in general devalued. At one point in time in the book, uh, I believe your ex-husband's lawyer refers to your work with air quotes. Oh, oh yeah. We'll never forget it. (laughs) The absolute rage that I felt each time you had to 
explain that just because you enjoy doing it doesn't, you know, detract from the fact that it is work. It is you're giving pieces of yourself, you're giving your time, you're giving your energy. There's emotional labor involved. It is work. I I know I personally have been in a position of having to say that really emphatically before. This isn't mm-hmm. just just fun. I know it looks like fun, but it's work. And that connection, I think a lot of people are going to feel that connection. Yeah, even whether you're a sort of a creative in the world or not, I I think many of us are used to our just our invisible labor in the home being just that. And and sort of what happens when one partner out earns the other one? And what does that make? What does that look like for the other person? What are your domestic responsibilities? Like how how do these things get negotiated? Or, or often not negotiated, they're sort of like unspoken, quote, deals in, in partnerships. And uh, yeah, I think, I think unfortunately that will be one of the, one of the really relatable parts of, of this story. And I, I think the two, the pandemic revealed so many sort of cracks and an already broken system where we saw how so much of the burden of particularly like the high quarantine years where kids couldn't go to school or daycare, you know, we ra- we all read the articles about how moms really carried the the burden of 2020 in particular and that academic year. And so I, I do think that, that that is unfortunately like it's sort of both timely and timeless. Yeah, position. yeah. And I think even people that are in what they consider to be really equitable feminist relationships found themselves reevaluating, especially during the pandemic. And lately, there's been even more discussion about it of just like, no, whose work is valued and whose time is valued? And what does that look like? And how do we value that? And it was a really universal line through your poem. In the beginning of the book, you ask how your experience can be useful to anyone mm-hmm. but you. And then you entrust the reader to be able to make that connection on their own. That seems to be the function of poetry. For me, I, I love poetry. I think it's just exquisite distillation of feelings and experiences set to music almost. Mm. And it helps us feel less alone in our struggles, in our observations of beauty and of grief. And, the, and you said that I read this book like poetry and it feels more like poetry mm. to me. What was your process in writing it? Is it similar to the way that you write poetry or did you approach it differently? No, I mean, I, I write everything as a poet. So I, I probably write emails as a poet. So when, when people see my emails, they're like, oh, there's a lot of anaphora and assonance in this email. And I'm only half joking. Like I, I really do. It's my home genre. So any, any writing project, whether it's an article for the Washington Post or an essay or, you know, something for my Substack, I'm always looking at it as a poet. I don't know how not to do that. So I'm always thinking about everything at the sentence level. I'm thinking about the other things I think about in poetry, which are echo and pattern. So if I bring some an image up early, I find it really satisfying in a poem to come back to that image later and maybe to see how that image is transformed over time. Or does it mean something different later? Does this word mean something different later? So the the process of writing this book, I still approached it as a poet, I still approached it with my sort of attention to to language mm-hmm. and image and sound and repetition and and all of those things, all the same. Like the the poetry toolkit was absolutely out for this book. 
Yeah, I I was reviewing all the different flags and stuff like that that I put in the book before we spoke today. And I was really struck by the echo and the repetition between different passages. And there's some things that are, you know, you can clearly see the recurrence of it, unanswered question and that sort of thing. But then there were other smaller pieces that just pop up again and again, like little waves through the whole book. And I, I really see this as one of those books that I return to a lot very often, you know, pieces of it and as a whole, because it it does feel like going through the process of grief yourself. And it feels like finding Mm. that healing space, you know? Oh, I love that. I mean, part of, part of me deciding on this form for the book, it, it really was how I approach writing a poem. Like when I sit down to write a poem, I'm thinking what form best fits this content? You know, it's a love poem or it's a narrative poem or it's, what, like, so what, how much white space needs to be built in? How long should the line be? Like, what, what's the sort of emotional tone? And I really did approach this book that way. What form is going to not only be able to allow me to tell the story, like the narrative, but also how can I make you feel what the sort of emotional weather of this experience felt like? And so the only way I could do that was by trying to sort of enact some of it. And that is, you know, if you're ruminating about something and thinking about something over and over again or trying to make sense of something, repetition makes sense because you're returning to the same ideas, you know? So I love that you had that experience because I really did want the book to feel a certain way, not just be like readable start to finish so that you could get the, you could get the plot points and that was it. Yeah, the basic foundation of this book is that you are in a position where you discover that your marriage is falling apart and then you go through the process of divorce and becoming a single parent of two two young children and then the pandemic hits and it's kind of about sort of redefining your life and yourself and your relationship to the world and your relationship as a parent and all these like little and huge pieces mm-hmm. that that all come together I don't think the reader has to be someone who has experienced any of those things to get so much out of this book because we have all experienced grief and the way that grief just wipes you out existentially and you have to rebuild again and reorient yourself again and and there really aren't enough resources you know there's not enough Mm. I don't think at this level that's not saying like you'll get through it Yeah, pep talks. (laughs) Yeah, this is really a teacher. And I think one of the pieces that I loved the most that I flagged and was like, yes, was when you were talking about how, and you're really good, really deliberate about keeping your children's emotional experience out of this book. And I'm not trying to bring this their experience into this discussion. Yeah. You at one point in time talk about resilience and how people say like, do you think this is going to make them more resilient? And you have a really beautiful, very eloquent internal response you want to give that sort of ends with fuck resilience. What an absolute scapegoat of an excuse of bad behavior that people give to say, but think of how resilient you'll be or look how strong that situation made you. Fuck that. It didn't have to happen. And fuck resilience. Yeah. Yeah. I have in this book a lot of issues with the sort of making lemonade from lemons aspect of of grief and like big upheaval. And I don't think that growth 
via having terrible things happens to ha- happening to you is the kind of growth we want. Like, is there growth? Yes. Like post-traumatic growth is real. Thank goodness there is something that is positive that can come from going through terrible things. But wouldn't it be better if we just didn't? Like, let's just not. How about that? It's not the only way to grow. It is not the only way to grow. And it's the same. I write about this in the book too, the idea that like, you've been given all this material, right? Like you've really taken the lemons of your life and made lemonade by writing these books. And my my real response to that is like, I would have written a book about something else and felt better if this hadn't happened. Like I'm a writer. I write. I write books. Like it didn't have to be this book or the previous book or the previous book. I'm working with the material I have. But goodness, wouldn't it have been great to have different, milder, better, gentler material and to, I could have just written a fantasy novel about something completely unrelated. Yeah. Pain doesn't have to be a catalyst for art. It no. doesn't. No, 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 no. We don't need to be quite that masochistic. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you today about your memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. It comes out April 4th. Absolutely fantastic. I love this book so much. It felt like a lifeline to me, and I'm deeply grateful to you for having written it. If folks want to find out more about you or you find your books online, what resources would you like to offer? If they if they look up Maggie Smith Poet, that's social media, that's my website. I'm I'm easy to find to find that way. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I'm Marikita Guerrera, and you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. This has been an absolute real treat. Until next time, friends, be well. Hi, my name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with Cheryl A. Head. She is a writer, television producer, and broadcast executive. She is the author of the award-winning Charlie Mack Motown Mysteries, and she joins us to talk about her latest novel, Time's Undoing. Cheryl, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be with you, Ashley. And my first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Ah, that's an interesting question. I think it is being aware of your place in the world as a, as a woman, your awareness of your place in the world as a person who has a contribution to make and a voice to give. I think that historically, women and some men, but women in this country have, have felt like they didn't have a voice were giving a voice, didn't have the right to speak up. I think that's changing, you know, rapidly. And I think that's also a generational thing. But women, you know, they will be the, the savior. They will be our saviors, I happen to think. And I also, you know, this is my conceit. And the reason I write Black women protagonists, I think Black women protagonists especially have a role to play in making this country great. And I think they have been folks with agency all along, but never with the credit they deserve. It's a multi-layered definition and it's yours and it's yours to share with us. So thank you. My next question for you is what is Time's Undoing about? This is a story that based on a personal family tragedy, Ashley. In 1929, my grandfather was killed by Birmingham, Alabama police. It's a story my siblings and I heard over the decades from my mother and from my aunt and from my grandmother, but without a lot of facts and details about what happened. This is the Jim Crow South. My grandfather was there to work in the burgeoning steel industry with his young wife and 
his young daughter. And you know, one day he's off to work and he's killed by police officers. My family at the time are whisked away for their own safety, away from Birmingham, because in the Jim Crow South, you didn't challenge police departments and you didn't complain a lot. The city was one of the strongholds of the Klan in the South. And across the South, most police departments were embedded with Klan members. So it was a story told in whispers and furtive glances. But over the years, my mother and grandmother kept my grandfather's memory alive. And I vowed to write the story at some point, but was insecure about how many details I had to tell the story. So when George Floyd was murdered in March 2020, I was just so enraged. I just thought, I'm writing this story now. And literally the next day, I opened my laptop and started writing. And Megan, who is the main character in this story, to pivot, she says, I was lucky, but also prepared. And she's talking to, when she meets Kristen, she's talking about her education and her worldly experiences. Why was that important for her to say? And how does she characterize herself with those words? Now, that's what a great question. You know, she is a young woman who is very, I think, self-aware. I wanted to make her complex. So she is certainly comes from privilege. She has grown up in a, a professional household, two father and a mother who are professionals. She's gone to Stanford. You know, she's considered considers herself maybe a black nerd. Mm-hmm. Oh, that by her friends. She's a bit of a loner in that she doesn't quickly make friends. I think she's very assertive, ambitious. I think she's very ambitious. And she's a journalist who wants to be known as a good journalist. Mm -hmm. She really takes the J school training seriously and wants to be considered by folks she talks to as an earnest and knowledgeable journalist. So to her, when she's having these conversations with folks and they see that she's 28 and may not take Mm -hmm. her seriously, she says... You know, I'm working this beat, this Black Lives Matter beat for four years because I prepared myself to do it. And I think she has enough self-awareness to know that she has to come with both professional education, professional experience, and then kind of a real sense of her of herself and of confidence in her abilities. And yeah, I thought it was an interesting way. I actually like that she didn't outright say I'm privileged because for her, she understands it as a Black woman. Not many Black women, especially her age, don't get the experiences that she does. But she's worked to have what she does, what she has. Yes. And she's honoring her family in a way by continuing with her education, working at Detroit Free Press, which is a storied newspaper, and doing this work for her father, for her her great-grandfather, but also putting to work what she's learned through at J school. That's exactly right. Right. And, you know, she's a little bit insecure about it. And I talk about that in the book, whether she can bring all her professional skills because it's a personal story and wanting to do it justice, which I think she does. I, I liked her a lot. I think she's a very serious character in this book. And I wanted her to carry the 2019 story because I wanted to make the story of a a 90-year-old crime relevant to young people today and young readers today. And I wanted them to see themselves in her and her ability to make change in this world. And And I'm curious how you crafted such a multifaceted story. There's some romance. I don't really want to outright say that it's a thriller. There's some, certainly some aspects that made me sit up 
when I was reading this book. Yeah, I hear you. But there's some eye-popping moments that happen in the story. How did you write such a multifaceted story? And how did you create characters with full backgrounds? I I don't believe in the secondary characters being just just people flat on the page. I, I think they need to have serious background. And I usually flesh out serious backgrounds for my protagonists and my secondary characters. And I fell in love with them. These old women at the church and stuff. I know those people, and I wanted readers to know them. It was daunting when I was writing it. The historical sections I wrote fairly organically because, again, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about the the details of my grandfather's murder, but I did the research to understand what 1929 life was like for African Americans, called Negroes in those days, what that segregated Jim Crow environment would be like, and I wanted people to immerse themselves in that. And then for the 2019 chapters, I was very conscious of this in doing so, writing a good story, but also conscious conscious of what the readers I wanted to invite to the story, both Black and white and other. You know, what sometimes when I'm writing, I'm thinking, Black people already know this. Who really needs to know this is white folks. That was in the back of my mind a lot of the time. And I wanted to show not just the suffering, the pain, and the the you know, the dr- draconian laws of Jim Crow. And some, so many of our stories are like just steeped in misery. Not that that's not a real thing. I also wanted them to see the value and the beauty of Black love and Black joy. Yeah. And that community thriving together and resisting together. And that's how I think we can make change in this country. So all this stuff is popping around in the back of my head when I was writing. I also have to say, and this has only happened to me a couple of times, you know, sometimes characters speak to you when you write. And I feel like a writer's very lucky when that happens. I certainly felt my grandfather nudge me a few times in the right direction as I kind of, you know, would, would get to a point where I didn't know where to go, that he would say, point me to an article or point me to a piece of music or something like that to, to keep me writing. So there's Black Press. As I mentioned, Megan writes for the Detroit Free Press. Yes. And there's also the media. How did you bring these, bring the press and the media and journalism together to help tell this story, aside from the fact that Megan is a journalist? Okay. Well, you know, I worked in public broadcasting a long time. I was a street reporter in Detroit for the public radio station and for a while for one of the commercial radio stations there. So I knew a, I knew a journalist would have the chops and the interest to try to get at a story, especially one that old. I had thought about writing it myself as I worked as a, as a journalist in, in Detroit. I don't have a J school degree, but I was, I have a communications degree, two communications degree from Wayne state university. And so I thought, you know, I, a young journalist with fever, and passion for the story can get at this. And so I, that was my conceit going, going, going forward. And I wanted to also pay homage to Black newspapers. My first book, which was self-published, was a historical fiction about ne- Negro soldiers in World War II. And the Black newspapers were such a valuable resource for the country and for Black communities during World War II. They started campaigns about equality in the military. They reported on the race riots that occurred on military bases. Stories we would not have heard had they not been in business. 
And it turns out Birmingham had a dozen or more Black newspapers. Some of them were weeklies and some of them were nothing more than newsletters. But they were filled with rich stories about Black life. And I burrowed heavily from the ones that were digitized that I could find, as well as some of the mainstream newspapers. Just I, I have nothing I have nothing but good things to say about the Black press then and now. Yes. And also just I, I find journalism to be fleeting. It's still important, but it is fleeting. It's changed. The dynamics have changed. Social media has certainly informed those changes. And so it's, it was wonderful to read about the Black press as well as Detroit Free Press and the local papers have an important place in this story. I think still do and will. They have to imagine how they operate around the economics of newspapers today, you know, and everybody's doing that kind of work. But, you know, I think the micro local newspapers might be a bigger thing than they are now. It's important for our stories to be told. All of them and they cumulative, all these small stories of black life in particular, cumulatively paint a picture that we haven't seen before because when I went to public school, none of that stuff was in there. I barely, there was no Black History Month, and I barely heard about Black contribution to America or Black resistance, you know, or Black creativity or Black intellectuals or, you know, just wasn't. So my next question for you is, Megan seeks out elders in the community, those who either ran newspapers in Birmingham or at the church. So how did you want to honor elders in this story? That's good that you picked up on that. I mean, I think it's part of her kind of feeling like she's a Black nerd. She's kind of older than her years. I think she and Darius have that in common and see that in each other. But I know, as I said to you earlier, I think that, maybe I didn't say this to you, that I think Black women, my conceit is that Black women can rule the world, you know? Yes. Because in a lot of cases, they already do. They just don't get credit for it. In institutions, at least when growing up, in every institution I was in, in Detroit, there might not have been the Black woman's name on the door, but in that, in the recesses of those offices, there was one woman who was running the show. And she knew all the the finances, who to call about things, you know, just running the show. And so that's, my conceit is that Black women are powerful and have agency and should have more agency. And so you'll see that in all my books. And I think that Megan has that kind of agency. And I think she... She understands it more about herself as she goes through this story and the courage she has. You know, other people were saying to her, you need to go home, girl. And she's going like, oh, no, now I'm really staying, you right. know, now I'm really telling this story. I love that about her. Yes. And something that I noticed in the story, there have been numerous books written about Southern hospitality and there have been numerous books written about racism. But something that I noticed was of course, Megan being in Detroit and going to Birmingham and her mother has hesitations about her going. How did you create the relationship between Southern hospitality and Megan's mother being hesitant about her daughter going to Birmingham, given the fraught history of racism in the South? Yeah, I thought it was important that I didn't demonize the city. I know, you know, I have Southern roots myself. You know, I know that Southern hospitality is real. In my last few visits to Birmingham, I'm always amazed at how personable and respectful the young people are there. Especially when I compare them to young people in D.C. Really, okay. They're really nice. I know that Megan's mom's fears are real. 
my mom had those fears, you know, after what happened to her father. I I remember folks talking about 1963 and just shaking their heads about the South and how it just could never be redeemed. I think any place and any person can be, well, maybe not every person, but many, many people can be redeemed. And I wanted to really paint a, not a generalized picture of Birmingham, but one that said, on the one hand, this city has been so embedded in the ills of prejudice in this country and in the pain of Black people in this country. And on the other hand, this is a place where the individual folks are striving to do better, even as the city itself wants to paint itself as different. That's why I write in this book, you know, that you can't just get rid of hundreds of years of wrongdoing with a few decades of marketing, you know? Mm-hmm. The earth holds all the dirt, I, I write. Yeah. And I think that's true of places. And Birmingham, Alabama is not the only place in this country. Yes, there were, there were a couple of times, though, I wanted to jump into the story and eat with them. I I was like, I can sure go for a sweet tea with lemon, the little pebble ice, and a nice warm meal. They went to some nice places and in the, this there in the is- Food there is fabulous. I had some when I was there last year, and I was going like the food here is so damn good. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I'm, and that's part of the culture of Southern hospitality, and a, a lot of that that culture and those practices made their way to to Detroit, where I'm from, and northern cities, and that migration of Black people from the South to the North. Right. Isabel Wilkerson writes so yes. about. My last question for you is: Where would you like our audience to buy Times Undoing from? You know, I don't have a specific preference. I love indie bookstores and I love libraries. That really yes. Do. Yes. So I would always say, you know, go to your favorite indie bookstores in, in, in D.C. We have a handful of fabulous ones here. I know not every city is, is that lucky, but your library is going to be a place that if they don't have it in their holdings, if you request it, they will get it for you. And just before we end this conversation, you did mention Isabel Wilkerson. I have a couple, of, I have a few books in a film to recommend along with Times Undoing. One is The Warmth of Other Sons. The other is Eye on the Struggle about Ethel Payne, who was the mother of Black Press. Oh, uh, yes, that Ethel Payne, yes. Yes, yes. And The the Defender, which is a book about the Chicago yeah. Defender. Paper. Yes. And the film Just Mercy about yes. Brian Stevenson's work with the Equal Justice Initiative and his work in Birmingham, Alabama, getting a prisoner off death row. Just thinking about Alabama, Birmingham in particular. So those three books in that film, along with Time's Undoing, which is a phenomenal novel, and I hope you all enjoy. And Cheryl A. Head, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ashley. Yes, great questions. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.